section twelve of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter thirty six the end of john company part one while these things were passing in india it is needless to say that the public opinion of england was distracted by agitation and by opposing counsels for a long time the condition of indian affairs had been regarded in england with something like absolute indifference india was to the ordinary englishman a place where men used at one time to make large fortunes within a few years and where lately military and civil officers had to do hard work enough without much chance of becoming nabobs in many circles it was thought of only as the hated country where one's daughter went with her husband and from which she had after a few years to send back her children to england because the climate of india was fatal to certain years of childhood it was associated in the minds of some with tiger hunting in the minds of others with bishop heber and missions to the heathen most persons had a vague knowledge that there had been an impeachment of warren hastings for something done by him in india and that burke had made great speeches about it in his famous essay on lord clive published only seventeen years before the indian mutiny lord macaulay complained that while every schoolboy as he put it in his favourite way knew all about the spanish conquests in the americas about montezuma and cortez and pizarro very few even of cultivated english gentlemen knew anything whatever about the history of england's empire in india in the house of commons a debate on any question connected with india was as strictly an affair of experts as a discussion on some local gas or water bill the house in general did not even affect to have any interest in it the officials who had to do with indian affairs the men on the opposition benches who had held the same offices while their party was in power these and two or three men who had been in india and who were set down as crotchety because they professed any concern in its mode of government such were the politicians who carried on an indian debate and who had the house all to themselves while the discussion lasted the indian mutiny startled the public feeling of england out of this state of unhealthy languor first came the passion and panic the cry for blood the wholesale executions the blowing of rebels from guns then came a certain degree of reaction and some eminent englishmen were found to express alarm at the very sanguinary methods of repression and of punishment that were in favour among most of our fellow-countrymen in india it was during this season of reaction that the famous discussions took place on lord canning's proclamation on march third eighteen fifty eight lord canning issued his memorable proclamation memorable however rather for the stir it created in england than for any great effect it produced in india it was issued from allahabad whither the governor-general had gone to be nearer to the seat of war the proclamation was addressed to the chiefs of oed and it announced that with the exception of the lands then held by six loyal proprietors of the province the proprietary right in the whole of the soil of oed was transferred to the british government which would dispose of it in such manner as might seem fitting 
the disposal however was indicated by the terms of the proclamation to all chiefs and landholders who should at once surrender to the chief commissioner of Oued, it was promised that their lives should be spared provided that their hands were unstained by english blood murderously shed but it was stated that as regards any further indulgence which may be extended to them and the conditions in which they may hereafter be placed they must throw themselves upon the justice and mercy of the british government read by the light of literalness this proclamation unquestionably seemed to amount to an absolute confiscation of the whole soil of Oued, for even the favoured landowners who were to retain their properties were given to understand that they retained them by the favour of the crown and as a reward for their loyalty this was the view taken of the governor-general's act by one whose opinion was surely entitled to the highest consideration from every one sir james outram chief commissioner of Oued. sir james outram wrote at once to lord canning pointing out that there were not a dozen landowners in Oued who had not either themselves borne arms against us or assisted the rebels with men or money and that therefore the effect of the proclamation would be to confiscate the entire proprietary right in the province and to make the chiefs and landlords desperate and that the result would be a guerrilla war for the extirpation root and branch of this class of men which will involve the loss of thousands of europeans by battle disease and exposure lord canning was not ready to admit even in deference to such authority as that of sir james outram that his policy would have any such effects but he consented to insert in the proclamation a clause announcing that a liberal indulgence would be granted to those who should promptly come forward to aid in the restoration of order and that the governor-general will be ready to view liberally the claims which they may thus acquire to a restitution of their former rights in truth it was never the intention of lord canning to put in force any cruel and sweeping policy of confiscation the whole tenor of his rule in india the very reproaches that had been showered on him the very nickname which his enemies had given him that term of reproach that afterwards came to be a title of honour might have suggested to the sharpest critic that it was not likely clemency canning was about to initiate a principle of merciless punishment for an entire class of men lord canning had come to the conclusion that the english government must start afresh in their dealings with Oued. he felt that it would be impossible to deal with the chiefs and people of the province so lately annexed as if we were dealing with revolted sepoys he put aside any idea of imprisonment or transportation for mere rebellion seeing that only in the conqueror's narrowest sense could men be accounted rebels because they had taken arms against a power which but a moment before had no claim whatever to their allegiance or their obedience nevertheless Oued was now a province of the british empire in hindustan and lord canning had only to consider what was to be done with it he came to the conclusion that the necessary policy for all parties concerned was to make of the mutiny and the consequent reorganization an opportunity not for a wholesale confiscation of the land but for a measure which should declare that the land was held under the power and right of the english government the principle of this policy was somewhat like that adopted by lord durham in canada 
it put aside the technical authority of law for the moment in order that a reign of genuine law might be inaugurated it seized the power of a dictator over life and property that the dictator might be able to restore peace and order at the least cost in loss and suffering to the province and the population whose affairs it was his task to administer but it may be freely admitted that on the face of it the proclamation of lord canning looked strangely despotic some of the most independent and liberal englishmen took this view of it men who had supported lord canning through all the hours of clamour against him felt compelled to express disapproval of what they understood to be his new policy it so happened that lord ellenborough was then president of the board of control and lord ellenborough was a man who always acted on impulse and had a passion for fine phrases he had a sincere love of justice according to his lights but he had a still stronger love for antithesis lord ellenborough therefore had no sooner received a copy of lord canning's proclamation than he dispatched upon his own responsibility a rattling condemnation of the whole preceding other conquerors wrote the fiery and eloquent statesman when they have succeeded in overcoming resistance have accepted a few persons as still deserving of punishment but have with a generous policy extended their clemency to the great body of the people you have acted upon a different principle you have reserved a few as deserving of special favour and you have struck with what they feel as the severest of punishments the mass of the inhabitants of the country we cannot but think that the precedents from which you have departed will appear to have been conceived in a spirit of wisdom superior to that which appears in the precedent you have made the style of this dispatch was absolutely indefensible a french imperial prefect with a turn for eloquent letter-writing might fitly thus have admonished the erring mayor of a village community but it was absurd language for a man like lord ellenborough to address to a statesman like lord canning who had just succeeded in keeping the fabric of english government in india together during the most terrible trial ever imposed on it by fate the question was taken up immediately in both houses of parliament lord shaftesbury in the house of lords moved a resolution declaring that the house regarded with regret and serious apprehension the sending of such a dispatch through the secret committee of the court of directors an almost obsolete piece of machinery we may remark and its publication and that such a course must prejudice our rule in india by weakening the authority of the governor-general and encouraging the resistance of rebels still in arms a similar motion was introduced by mr cardwell in the house of commons in both houses the arraignment of the ministry proved a failure lord ellenborough at once took upon himself the whole responsibility of an act which was undoubtedly all his own and he resigned his office the resolution was therefore defeated in the house of lords on a division and had to be withdrawn in a rather ignominious manner in the house of commons four nights of vehement debate were spent in the latter house opinion was strangely divided men like mr bright and sir james graham condemned the proclamation and defended the action of the government the position of mr cardwell and his supporters became particularly awkward for they seemed after the resignation of lord ellenborough 
to be only trying to find partisan advantage in a further pressure upon the government the news that sir james outram had disapproved of the proclamation came while the debate was still going on and added new strength to the cause of the government it came out in the course of the discussion that lord canning had addressed a private letter to mr vernon smith afterwards lord liveton lord ellenborough's predecessor as president of the board of control informing him that the proclamation about to be issued would require some further explanation which the pressure of work did not allow its author just then to give lord canning wrote this under the belief that mr vernon smith was still at the head of the board of control mr vernon smith did not tell lord ellenborough anything about this letter and it was of course very strongly urged that had lord ellenborough known of such a document being in existence he would have held his hand and waited for further explanation mr vernon smith it was explained was in ireland when the letter arrived and did not get it in time to prevent the action of lord ellenborough and lord granville stated that he had himself had a letter to a similar effect from lord canning of which he had told lord ellenborough but that that impetuous nobleman did not show the least interest in it and did not even hear it out to the end still there was an obvious difference between a letter to a friend and what might be considered an official communication to lord ellenborough's predecessor in the very office on behalf of which he issued his censure and at all events the unexpected revelation tended greatly to strengthen the position of the government the attack made by mr cardwell broke down or crumbled away mr disraeli described the process of its disappearance in a speech which he delivered a few days after at slough and the description is one of his happiest pieces of audacious eloquence it was like a convulsion of nature rather than any ordinary transaction of human life i can only liken it to one of those earthquakes which take place in calabria or peru there was a rumbling murmur a groan a shriek a sound of distant thunder no one knew whether it came from the top or the bottom of the house there was a rent a fissure in the ground and then a village disappeared then a tall tower toppled down and the whole of the opposition benches became one great dissolving view of anarchy assuredly mr disraeli was entitled to crow over his baffled antagonists do you triumph roman do you triumph it must have been a meeker roman than mr disraeli who would not have triumphed over so complete and unexpected a humiliation of his enemies the debate in the house of commons was memorable in other ways as well as for its direct political consequences it first gave occasion for mr cairns as he then was to display the extraordinary capacity as a debater which he possessed and which he afterwards made of such solid and brilliant service to his party it was also the occasion of the comte de montalembert's celebrated pamphlet on débat sur l'inde au parlement anglais for which and its thrilling contrast between the political freedom of england and the imperial servitude of france he had the honour of being prosecuted by the french government and defended by Monsieur Berrier. End of section 12.